0: This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Join me each week alongside my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as I dive into another case. We created this show to tell a victim's story, to be a voice when they no longer have one. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. Today's case is one that is just gut wrenching. It is a child's case, so I'll warn you about that now. I know not everyone likes these cases, but as I've said before, these cases need to be covered too. We can't make positive changes or advocate for children if we are ignoring the children's cases. I know that they're hard to listen to, but it was a lot harder for the child to go through. These cases also deserve our attention. With that, are you ready for today's case? So have you ever heard, have you ever watched America's Most Wanted, the television show? Yeah. Okay, so John Walsh, he's the host of America's Most Wanted, and he now hosts In Pursuit with John Walsh, and he also co-founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which we've highlighted here on the podcast quite a few times because it's like a huge nonprofit doing like good work for children. So do you know the background of how John Walsh came into this type of work and ended up being on America's Most Wanted and stuff?
1: Didn't it happen to his own kid?
0: Yeah. And An you know like, that story, yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about today, because as most people will know, John Walsh did not just stumble into this work. He was basically forced into it because he didn't want his son to have died in vain. So John and his wife, Ravee have dedicated their lives to advocate for children after their own was murdered. And his case has forever changed the way that America handles a missing child's case. So this is his little boy's story. So John and Revae Walsh were living in Hollywood, Florida, and this area was described as Small Town America by the cold blood documentary team. John is featured in episode 10 titled The Lost Boy, and he says that Hollywood at that time felt like a place you could raise your children safely. So, at around noon on July 27, 1981, Revae got her six-year-old son, Adam Walsh, dressed up and ready to go run some errands. She was interested in a lamp that she had seen for sale at Sears, so the two of them head to the Hollywood Plaza. When they walk inside, there is this video game console surrounded by a group of older boys, and Adam was in awe because apparently video games were like a new thing at this time. It's 1981, so Adam begged his mom to let him stay and watch the boys play the game, and this was an Atari video game console. So Revae was only going to be like a few aisles away from this video game console. It would take her a matter of minutes to spot the lamp she wanted, pay, and be back. So she tells Adam sure, but she made him promise not to budge from that spot. She told him not to move and that she would be quick. So she goes to look for these lamps, but she ultimately doesn't even find the one that she was hoping for, so she doesn't need to check out. She's away from Adam for literally just a few minutes. But when she returns to the game console, he's not there. She had been so close to this console that even while she was looking for lamps, she could still hear the video game being played, which had reassured her that everything was okay but now she's back and her son is not there. This is obviously going to have panic set in and I'm sure at first she tried to tell herself that he was close by. We all would, right? Like you've all like maybe lost sight of your kid for two seconds and you're like, wait, where's my kid?
1: Yeah, remember when we lost Megan downtown?
0: I, I don't think I do. You don't? No. Wait. No, we I do. were at the Downtown lights. taking pictures. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Wa- how old was she? Around? I don't remember.
0: But she had not been pretty young because she's only like 18 or 19 now.
1: Yeah. She was pretty young. And
0: we did lose her. We and lose we like took a picture. Her. We didn't notice until we took a picture, right? We even took the picture. And then weren't we looking at it and we were like, where's Megan? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then we're like, where's Megan? And then
1: we all split up. We found her, but I don't remember if she was just in a spot and then she was crying. I know that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) We just like went. It had to have been a hot minute that she wasn't with us because no one like noticed immediately. Which so like those things happen? I think to, everybody's
1: lost their kid at one point. That's what or I another. was gonna
0: say. Like those things happen. Like little things where you're just like, wait, where are they? Even yeah. if it's just for like thirty seconds, you like focus your mind on something else, and this just happened to go really, really wrong. So and were there so, other
1: kids there playing?
0: Yeah. On the so video there was games? a there was a group of boys and Adam. There was a group of boys who were older like maybe teenage and then Adam six was just watching so I think she was like sure stay by these older kids I'll be a couple minutes she literally was just a couple minutes but by the time she's back Adam's gone and all the boys are gone I'm sure at first she's just kind of calling out his name but as she searches the plaza she's not finding him anywhere so she ends up getting security to start helping her search but as the time ticks by the panic grows. Revae calls John and she's trying to explain but she's crying uncontrollably and he couldn't make out exactly what she was saying but he could tell something was wrong. He makes his way to the Hollywood plaza and the police are called. John didn't appreciate the police response right from the jump. The police had told Revae and John that Adam must have simply wandered off and that he would turn up soon. At this time, police still typically didn't take missing persons cases until it had been 24 to 48 hours. But like, this kid has gone missing from the mall. He's six. So it seems weird to me for them to be like, well, he'll probably turn up or to like even think that they would wait 24 hours because it's like he literally is missing. We know he's missing. He was here at the mall. So he didn't just run away or go off on his own. And it seemed obvious to John that the search would be on immediately.
1: That reminds me of the episode you did on that little boy at the mall.
0: Yes. Yes. He's like holding his mom's hand. And she literally just goes to pay for her stuff. And by the time she pays, he's gone from her side and lured out of the mall by those two 10-year-old boys. Mm -hmm. James, James Bolger. Yeah, that is one of the saddest little things that happened. I hate that story. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And it was like, oh, that is just like such a, that's a terrible one. But yeah, just like you literally could have your, she had her eyes off her kid, James' mom, for like 30 seconds and he was gone. She was right there with him. So yeah, it can happen like so quickly. And I think in that case, they immediately started looking for him, like fast. Yeah. But police here in this case, they were just kind of brushing it off in the beginning. Like, he's going to come back. But again, he's like six. Detective Larry Hoisington says that police were given a photo of Adam and asked to look around the area initially they were worried that adam had in fact wandered off and possibly drowned due to the many drainage canals around this area and this could have been a probable theory but john and Rave knew their little boy he would not just go off on his own he is described by them as a very shy and timid so while at the plaza They had discovered that Adam was likely kicked out of the Sears store with that group of older boys. A 17-year-old security guard was working that day, and she said that around the time Adam went missing, there was a group of boys fighting over the video game console. She kicked them out of the store for making a scene, and she admits that she thinks she remembers Adam being a part of that group she set outside. John and Ravee's hearts drop at this news because, like I said earlier, he was shy and timid. They did not believe that Adam would have spoken up to tell the security guard that he was not with the boys and instead his mom was just a few aisles away. The security guard said she assumed the little boy was, one with, was with one of the older boys. So this pretty much tells us that adam was sent outside of the plaza and ultimately police believe that he was abducted outside of the store which Uh. is really sad because he was just scared to tell her like i'm actually not with them i know (laughs) he just like went with like went outside and listened to her like he was just a sweet little boy So, you know, I'm sure the older boys went out the store with him and then went on their way. And then Adam was left there outside of the store all by himself. By the time nightfall came on July 27th, Adam had not returned. John and Revae were not about to sit around and do nothing. So John organized a group of his own friends to go out searching. The couple and their friends also would come up with $100,000 as a reward to put up for Adam's safe return. John says, quote, I had that terrible feeling that something was awfully wrong here. Nobody was looking for that little boy except for me and my friends. And something very serious has happened to this little boy.
1: I know. Could they have gotten a hold of the group of boys? Like, were there cameras?
0: Like, I I, I mean, maybe not, but... I know, 1981 doesn't sound like there were security cameras, at least not on the outside. But, I mean, a
1: six-year-old's not going to wander off and then come back. I mean... No. They're too young, I feel. No. They'd be scared (laughs) or crying or...
0: No, yeah, that is absolutely crazy for the police to think, like... Well, he went off, but maybe he'll just come back. Yeah. Like, no, I don't think he probably knows where he is. If he did wander off, yeah, and they're saying he 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 wouldn't get
1: back. He's six.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And like, if he did wander off, and there are a bunch of canals, like, be out there searching now. Go look before he gets into one. So, yeah. John just was not impressed with the police response from the get-go. And Revae, she couldn't leave the plaza that day without her son. She kept thinking, what if he is close by? What if he does come looking for her? So she left her car there in the parking lot. John brought a blanket and a pillow that they set up in the back seat and there was a note left there in the car telling Adam to stay in the car and that mommy and daddy were looking for him. John told Coldblood that Revae was positive Adam would return safely. So she like had to go home that night and so they set up this little like area in her car that he could stay with a blanket in case he like did come looking for her which is so sad That is, I know and then the next morning Revae she goes back to the mall to check her car but Adam was not there she walked around the mall but found nothing she would return to this location over and over hoping to find her little boy John continued searching canals around town Adam Walsh was an adorable little boy who loved wearing his baseball cap everywhere he went. He was obsessed with baseball. On the day he went missing, he was wearing a striped shirt, green shorts, and his favorite captain's hat. At this time in John and Rave’s life, Adam was their only child. They'll later go on to have a daughter and two more sons. John was the provider for his family, working as a hotel developer, while Revae was a stay-at-home mom to their son. The devastation they felt with him being ripped from them was felt so deeply. All they wanted during these days he was missing was for him to come home safely. John says that initially, he thought that maybe a woman who had a child die in childbirth had stolen Adam to keep him as her own. He describes Adam as a glowing, beautiful little boy, so maybe a grieving mother wanted to replace a child in this deranged way. So he's thinking something bad happened, but he could have like never imagined what really happened to Adam like even with thinking Adam was abducted he still kind of has it in a way like hopefully it's a mom like maybe a mom just took her to raise him like he's still living a happy life you know yeah like he just couldn't imagine what would actually have happened to Adam So as the days passed, the search for Adam would ultimately become one of the largest in Florida's history. Adam's family put up missing persons flyers all over town that read, quote, We are willing to negotiate ransom on any terms. Strict confidentiality. Do not fear revenge. We will not prosecute. We only want our son. They also posted these flyers in the airports and convinced airlines to pass the flyers out to their passengers. Mm. So after a couple of days, the Hollywood Police Department hire a psychic as somewhat of a last ditch effort to try and find him quickly. This woman tells police that she sees Adam in water. So, Detective Hoisington says police were told to get back out and check all water areas around the plaza. Which, like, I'm not really a fan of them bringing psychics, like, into investigations because I think a lot of times, and, like, don't get me wrong if you're a psychic out there, like, I think it's maybe fine, I don't know, to talk to them, like, well, for after that
1: fact, case, it seems like it's so soon after, like a couple of days. Yeah. Like, just do your job and investigate.
0: Yeah. And you never know, like, if you're working with someone legit or if you're working with someone who's, like, trying to get some clout for, like, being involved in a case. And then what if they just, like, lead you a weird way and you're, like, running down leads that have nothing to do with the investigation, I'm just like not a huge fan of them bringing them in for like, like right off the bat. Yeah, you know,
1: right off the bat. We should actually do a case where a psychic.
0: <laughs> yeah, what, Like, solved you, what the one case? Oh, and actually solved it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as I say, I'm not a huge fan. It is a little weird that she said that she sees him in water, because you'll see that does have to do with the case. So it is like well. I mean, maybe you were legit. It just seems like a weird step in the first week. But of then the it's investigation. like, did they,
1: did they like talk to her and be like, he went missing and there's lots of uh, drainage canals around?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it, it seems like a weird move, but that's just my opinion. Now, during the first week Adam was missing, John and Rave went out went on to multiple television stations locally, desperately trying to spread awareness about their missing son and possibly bring him home alive as well. They had also tried to get multiple national TV stations to bring them on, but three in a row refused the couple. Each station's response was that if they did it for Adam, they would have to do it for every other missing child. Which it's like, okay... Well, what's the problem with that? Yeah, I mean, do it. I know there's a lot of missing children, like, especially today. Like, but oh, it's like, okay, well, that's a great way to use your platform. So, like, use it. It was just a weird response. But finally, just a couple of weeks after Adam went missing, Good Morning America agrees to have John and Rave Walsh on the show. John felt like this was a huge break for them, and that this is what would bring his son home. The Walshes were set to appear on the show at 6 a.m. on August 10, 1981. But at 3 a.m., just hours earlier, John's friend called, asking for Adams Dental Records. John is a bit taken back. This friend tells him that a small boy's decapitated head had been found by a couple of fishermen along a drainage canal on the Florida Turnpike near Vero Beach, which was more than 120 miles north of Hollywood where Adam went missing. So John tells his friend that it could not be Adam, and he wonders who in the world would cut off a boy's head, which like, yeah, who would? Oh, yeah. It's like so sad. So in the meantime, John and Rave go ahead with the appearance on Good Morning America. Because at this time, he does not believe that's Adam. Remember, he's like thinking they're going to get Adam back because hopefully he's with some mom who like wanted a kid. Yeah. And he just doesn't. He's like, it's 100 miles north. Like he's just not going to let himself believe that. So they go on to Good Morning America and they're optimistic afterwards, still thinking this is going to bring Adam home. And since John and Revae were in New York City for the show when the discovery is made, that family friend who called goes to the police station to see if he can make an identification. Sadly, he confirms that the head is, in fact, Adam's, and this is later confirmed with dental records. Reve, after this I know, isn't that so sad? Yes. Like, six years old, and they just find his head. It's like, oh, I wouldn't want to believe that if I was him either.
1: I know, and they were away.
0: Yeah, like, they're not there. They're about to go on this national show that they, like... Are really excited about they think is gonna get their son back and then to get that call right before he's like absolutely not so they had gone on the show before it's confirmed or anything and then after the show Rave had gone out into the city for lunch and John was back at the hotel room when he receives a second phone call informing him that the head was in fact Adams and that he was found in the canal.
1: Was it his friend that told
0: him? It was, I'm not sure if it was, it's his friend who called the first time, but he didn't say on the second call if it was his friend that called back or if it was the police. Mm. I would think it was the police, but I'm not sure. So John's emotion take emotions take him over. He starts smashing things in the hotel room. He's breaking things like picture frames, like he is going a little crazy in there, until the hotel security comes up alongside a doctor. They're able to dissect what has gone on from what John is telling them, and they do their best to help calm him down before asking him where his wife is. They wanted to make sure that his wife was informed of the discovery as soon as possible. But John did not want anyone telling her except for him. Through tears, he said that this was the toughest thing he had ever done in his life, telling her that they found Adam's head. So he tells her they come back and, you know, everything. Investigation starts into the homicide and Joe Matthews, he's an investigator and the co he well he's a former investigator and the co-author of Bringing Adam Home. He says that at this point police knew Adam's case was now a homicide investigation. It's Dr. Ronald Wright that conducts the autopsy on Adam's remains, which is only his head, as his body was not found at that point and it has never been recovered. Dr. Wright finds that Adam had received blunt force trauma to his face around his eyes, which also went hand in hand with finding out that Adam had suffered a fractured nose. So this poor little sweetie, who was only six years old, was beaten before he was murdered, is basically what this autopsy tells you now that the family knows adam has passed away they want to hold a memorial service for him so although his remains have to be kept as evidence john and Rave hold a funeral service with an empty casket so who could have committed this heinous homicide of such a sweet and innocent little boy the hollywood police department gets to work on the case They first need to rule out everyone close to Adam, family, and friends. To do this, an expert at the lie detector was hired from the Miami Police Department. Detective Joe Matthews worked in Miami's Homicide Division, and his arrival at the Hollywood Police Department was not a warm welcome. It was one of those pride things where, like the Hollywood investigators, couldn't understand why someone from outside their department was brought in. So instead of putting Adam's case as priority, their pride got in the way. Regardless, Joe Matthews goes to work and starts by interviewing John Walsh and giving him a polygraph. Joe explains that he is looking at more than the polygraph results. He is also reading body language and noticing any hesitation in answers. While John was cleared and seen by Joe as a loving and truthful father, Joe did come away from this with some interesting information. It turns out that a few months earlier, John had invited 25-year-old Jimmy Campbell to come and live in their family home. Jimmy was a young man that John had met through the workplace and was mentoring. The agreement was that Jimmy could live with John and Revae as long as he was attending junior college. Jimmy seemed to have been close with Adam, often taking him to baseball games if John was working. But John says that just recently, Jimmy had dropped out of college, so John had to kick him out of the home. Joe wondered if Jimmy could have been upset enough to seek revenge on John. So he decides the next person he needed to polygraph was Jimmy. And it's during this interview that Joe finds out even more interesting information. It turns out that Jimmy and Revae had grown extremely close during his time in their home. The relationship was inappropriate, although I do not know the details of whether this was an emotional or sexual affair. But ultimately, Jimmy says that Rave had ended whatever was going on. But regardless of this information, Joe did not feel that Jimmy was involved. He seemed truthful. So Joe relays the information he has learned to the investigators with the Hollywood police. And immediately, they believe that this had to have been some sort of love triangle gone wrong, and that Jimmy had killed Adam to get back at Revae for dumping him. Joe tries to tell the investigators that they're wrong. Jimmy is not involved, but they tell him he needs to get a confession out of Jimmy. Now, Joe wasn't going to push for confession from a man he didn't feel was involved. He would not coerce a false confession. It would be unethical. So, he refuses and this gets him a quick boot off the case. The lead investigator at this time, Jack Hoffman, sends Joe Matthews on his merry way back to Miami and they start investigating Jimmy themselves. But quickly... They run into a dead end because Jimmy has a solid alibi. He was at work that day and his co-workers could all vouch for him. So the next lead to be followed up came from a witness who reported that her son thought he had seen Adam being pulled into a blue van on the day Adam was abducted. So over the next few weeks, the Hollywood police stop an overwhelming amount of blue vans in the area. But it ultimately leads them nowhere, and the investigation goes cold. Years pass with no answers, regardless of John and Revae's constant pressure on the police department to solve their son's case.
1: Wow, that'd be so hard.
0: Yeah, literally. Like, just not knowing.
1: Oh, yeah, we always talk about that. Like, it'd be yeah. worse not knowing.
0: yeah. And this was like such a brutal murder and he's six that it would just drive you mad. Like wondering what happened. How long was he like alive before he was killed? Like you would just want more information. Oh yeah. To kind of find closure and they didn't have it for a very long time. It's like very who took time. him?
1: Why'd they take him? Where'd they take him? Why was he so far away? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as bad as like, I think everything in this case probably ended up being worse than either of them imagined, like each thing, but like it was still closure, like it was better than not knowing. So two years go by. And a Jacksonville native by the name of Otis Toole is incarcerated in Duval County there in Florida. He had just been arrested for killing a 64-year-old man by setting his house on fire. And Otis is a scary-looking dude. This is one of the things that, like, oh, we know murders do not always look like monsters. Often they do look like your everyday person, someone most of us would be comfortable around. And that is sometimes scarier than like, you know, recognizing that someone is a creep. But Otis is just he is not one of those people that looks good on the outside and is evil on the inside. He is a monster and he looks like it, too. His picture gave me the heaps big time. I'm gonna send it to oh you, my actually. Gosh. It is so <laughs> gross. <Ugh. laughs> he is scary. Like, if you came in contact with him, you would be like, <gasps> scared. Yeah. And then to find out he's a serial killer. So, like, to find out he has murdered multiple people, like, I, f- I mean, I feel bad for anybody who is murdered, but oh, I feel bad for them yeah, that they like were in contact creepy. with this guy. Yeah. Oh, he gives me the heeba <laughs> So, Otis, he is described as having a very low IQ. He was a drifter living on the fringes of society. And although he was extremely odd, he is described as street smart in the Cold Blood documentary. So he's sitting in jail for this arson and homicide in 1983 when he starts confessing to multiple murders. Ultimately, Otis confesses to over a hundred murders. There is clear evidence that he committed nine and he was convicted of five murders. With those convictions, he was put onto Florida's death row. So while he's confessing to murders after his initial arrest, cold case detectives from all over want to talk to him to see if he is connected to any of their cases. It's at the tail end of one of these interviews that Otis says something along the lines of, I thought you were coming to ask me about that little boy I killed from the mall. And that statement's odd, and everyone's minds go directly to Adam Walsh. So this statement is reported to the Hollywood Police Department, but they don't follow up on it until Otis Toole mentions Adam's murder for a second time. Finally, they investigate. Detective Hoisington is assigned to drive Otis around, accompanied by other officers, And Otis was supposed to walk them through the crime. So they get onto the interstate and Otis does take them to the exit that leads to the Hollywood Plaza. Otis tells the detectives to park in front of the plaza and he points out the door that Adam had come from. He says that after getting Adam into his car, he drove Florida's Turnpike. Detective Hoisington then drives the turnpike about an hour north when Otis leads him just off the turnpike and tells him to stop the car. The officers and suspect then get out of the car and walk around the area. This is where Otis claims to have killed and decapitated Adam Walsh. After putting Adam's remains back into his car, Otis says that he drove a bit further. So the detective drives north until Otis tells him to turn off and stop the car. He shows the detective an area where he claims to have thrown Adam Walsh's head into the canal. Detective Hoisington says that this is the same area where Adam's head had been discovered. Investigators find that Otis was good friends with Henry Lee Lucas, another convicted serial killer. Henry is also known as the confession killer, who was convicted of killing his mom and two others, although he also confessed to hundreds of murders, just like Otis had. Henry had been sentenced for the murder of his mother in 1960, and he was then paroled only 10 years later in 1970. Shortly after he's paroled, he is convicted again no surprise, after attempting to kidnap a 15-year-old girl, and then he's paroled a second time in 1975. After this, no surprise, he killed two more women and was arrested in 1983, the same year that Otis Toole was arrested for his murder. So both of them were out free at the time that Adam Walsh was murdered in 1981, which like, how in the world was he paroled after murdering someone and then attempting to ki- kidnap someone? I know Like for murder and kidnapping you serve a total of 15 years and then you're out and then you murder two Don't more people again. and probably a lot of others. like what? Literally well, I was me just off.
1: thinking because you said that guy confessed to doing over a hundred murders like how? How are
0: you not I caught? know, And that's probably why he's called, like, the confession killer. Like, maybe he just confessed to a bunch of stuff. And kind of same with Otis. Like, did they really kill over 100 people? Or, like, he was just connected to the three, his mom and the two others. Otis was connected to nine, but convicted of five. I'm sure they killed more than what they were convicted for. Yeah. I'm not sure it's actually 100. But, like... I wondered, like, okay, so, like, was the murder of his mom something like a second-degree murder or, like, a manslaughter thing? Like, it wasn't, like, an actual murder? Is that why he got out in 10 years? No, he plunged a knife into his mom's neck while they were in an argument. How did he get out? He literally murdered his mom and got out 10 years later. And then what? The people who paroled him are shocked that he went on to kill more people. Like, oh,
1: I know those who decide once they decide to parole him, like have them go after their family members. Yeah,
0: it's like <laughs> it's I just don't get it. I am, you know, I understand reform and stuff and I'm all for reforming criminals who have not been like violent or murdered people but for murders i'm just not about parole <laughs> like you killed someone you you may spend the rest of your life in prison because someone is now dead because of you so goodbye mm. it's just it was the weirdest thing when i was looking at that i'm like <laughs> paroled two times after two like violent crimes okay Make especially
1: so- with when he kept doing it
0: yeah. Like he got he he got out for murder and then attempted to kidnap someone. You don't think he was gonna kidnap that girl and kill her? <laughs> you just thought he was gonna kidnap her? Like Yeah. <laughs> so weird. Anyway, the the whole thing between Henry and Otis, like they're just they're both super, super gross. So Henry and Otis had met each other at a rooming house they were staying at in Jacksonville, Florida. At the time Otis met Henry, Otis was already a convicted murderer, and he was also known as a drifter as well. Both men were bisexual, and they had started an intimate relationship with each other. They claimed to have committed multiple arsons and murders together. Les Standiford, author of Bringing Adam Home, described Otis' killings as not so much conscious acts, but thoughtless acts, making them all the more chilling. The two of them confessed to traveling across many states, killing victims wherever they went. They would often rape, torture, and mutilate their victims. They also confessed multiple times to severing a victim's head. Years after each of them were arrested, they were caught talking to each other through the prison phones and they were talking about cannibalism and how they would eat some of their victims. So they're nasty, absolutely disgusting. Whether they did that or even if they're just talking about it, it's like, ew. Yeah. (laughs) I did. And like when you... Your mind goes back to the picture of Otis. Like, as I tell you this, take your mind back to the photo of Otis.
1: I could see him doing that. It makes it (laughs) so much
0: worse. He will be burned into my memory forever. He creeps me out. So Otis tells the Hollywood police that Henry had left him for someone else which just so happened to be Otis's 14-year-old niece, Becky Powell. Henry also later confessed that he liked having someone who looked up to him. The two of them are described as running off together, but it sounds more like basically a kidnapping to me because a 14-year-old Becky could not consent to running off or being in this relationship. Mm. So I'm like, Yeah, they didn't run off together. Otis took her, groomed her. (laughs) They're not in a relationship, but, you know, kind of are. And it's really devastating because it's reported that Henry and Becky settled down together in Texas. But after a heated argument, Henry murdered Becky, dismembering her body and scattering her remains. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's one of the two people he killed that he's convicted of killing after his paroles. So like such a weird connection between these two killers, Otis and Henry. And Otis tells the police that after Henry left him for his own niece, he was so upset that he went on a killing spree. And this is when he killed Adam Walsh. But there was a problem with the confession. Otis was all over the place. One day he would say he buried Adam's body, the next he would say he just covered it with leaves. He would even sometimes say that Henry Lee Lucas was also involved in Adam's murder and that Henry is the one who killed Adam. The story was constantly changing until Otis eventually recants his entire confession. And with that, Adam's case goes cold again. So with him just not like, you know, a lot of times when they're changing their stories a lot, it seems like they're making it up, which if they were just confessing to a bunch of murders, that could have been probable. So they just don't know what to think at this point. Now, John Walsh told the Cold Blood documentary team that it was heartbreaking to hear that the case had fallen apart when they finally felt close to getting justice after two years. Once this happened, John explains that he was, quote, descending to hell, and that while he was throwing up at work and spending days at a time at home in misery, surrounded by his anger and trying to find a way out of this life to relieve his pain, Reve was putting in work to make sure that their son did not die in vain. It's around this time that she opens up the first Adam Walsh Center, which was founded to help find missing children. She said, quote, we need proactive programs to keep our kids safe. And eventually, John would claw his way through the sorrow and join forces with Revae because he also wanted something good to come out of this terrible tragedy. John and Rave's dedicated work would lead President Ronald Reagan to sign the Missing Children's Act in 1984. This required the FBI to record missing children into the National Crime Information Center computer to aid law enforcement agencies. So it's about two years after when they really get the ball rolling on just like diving themselves into this work helping other kids like helped them feel better yeah in a way so more years pass by with no answers and in february of 1988 john walsh takes on the job of hosting the tv show america's most wanted At the time of the Cold Blood documentary, he said that he had helped to catch 17 guys off of the America's Most Wanted list. He explains that this is more than any FBI agent in history. But while John and Rave channeled their grief into helping other families find justice, their own son's case remained cold. Years and years would pass by before another tip comes in. The next viable lead came in 1992, 11 years after Adam was murdered. The call is from Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel Dahmer. He says that everyone is forgetting that his son, who was just arrested in 1991, the year before he's calling, had a sexual preference for boys. And when he is discovered to be a murderer... They found a severed head in Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge. So Lionel urges detectives in Adam's case to look into his son, Jeffrey Dahmer. Which, like, shout out to Lionel. I think that's awesome. He was trying to help connect cases where he could. You know, we've talked about this before, I think. But after that show came out last year, Dahmer on Netflix everyone went after jeffrey's dad they talked so much crap on him they said he should have done more he knew his son was weird blah 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 and like to me i like i said i've said this before but even if he thought his son was strange or capable of killing or like capable of evil what could he have done like did everybody want him to call the police and just say hey i think my son's weird he might kill someone one day <laughs> like the police yeah, would be like okay what would they do like sure maybe they'd look into him a little more but they couldn't have done anything and you also can't get your adult child to like go get psychiatric help if they don't want it Yeah. you know so I'm going to shout out Lionel here for doing this and, like, calling and trying to, like, lead them and connect other cases. Because I think he did care that his son was a murderer. And even though he, like, loved... He was, like, one of those parents. You talk about it, like, there's some parents who defend their kids too much, try to give them false alibis, try to, like, get them out of it. I think, like, he thought his son should go to prison and then he continued visiting his son like he loved his son but I think knew he was evil and deserved to be in prison I just don't think he should have gotten as much crap as he did and then when I saw that he did this I was like yeah see like he did (laughs) he did care like my feeling was right (laughs) I am am confirmed (laughs) so You would think that this would lead the Hollywood Police Department to look into Jeffrey, maybe have a conversation with him since he is incarcerated at this point and it would be easy to talk to him, but no, they don't want to talk to the serial killer at all. Even though back when Jeffrey was arrested, police in Milwaukee had wanted to know all the places Jeffrey had lived before landing in Milwaukee. And it turns out that Jeffrey Dahmer lived in Miami Beach, Florida in 1981, the same year that Adam was murdered. Jeffrey worked just 15 minutes away from the Hollywood Plaza where Adam was abducted. And it turns out that through his work, he had access to vehicles. One of those vehicles just happened to be a blue van. Remember, this was something police had looked into at the very beginning of the case. They had that tip about the blue van. They pulled over a bunch of blue vans, but it led nowhere. What Milwaukee police found out seems like it would lead the Hollywood police to at least talk to Jeffrey Dahmer because he was there. He could have very well been the person who kidnapped Ada. But and like John Walsh, he's famous at this point. So, a couple of FBI agents, when the Hollywood Police Department won't talk to Jeffrey Dahmer, they called John Walsh themselves, these FBI agents, and they're like, hey, you need to get them to talk to Jeffrey Dahmer. This is a solid lead. So, this added pressure that pushed is what pushed the Hollywood Police Department to make the trip and talk with Jeffrey. Through their investigation of him, Jeffrey denies being involved with Adam's case. He says, yes, I killed children as young as 13. Yes, I did decapitate many of my victims, but I did not kill Adam. He says that it was not his MO to go for children this young, as young as six years old. The FBI is also involved at this point, along with the Hollywood Police Department, and ultimately, they rule Jeffrey Dahmer out. They agree that this goes against his M.O. with all of his other victims. Now, John and Revae Walsh are left yet again with no answers. The case goes cold for another 13 years. Oh, dang. I know, like so much, far too much time passed. So a couple of years after the Jeffrey Dahmer tip... Mark Smith, a Hollywood police detective, revisits the case. This was in 1994, and he told the media that despite the inconsistencies and reversals in confession, Otis Tool gave information that only the killer would have known. Quote, The fact that his severed head was found 124 miles north on the Florida Turnpike, which would add credence to someone from Jacksonville being involved, kind of fit. It's not like it was found in the Everglades. It was someone that went north after abducting him. It fits Otis' tool. But still, regardless of Mark coming out and saying he thinks it's Otis, Nothing moves forward in Adams' case. In the year 2000, America's Most Wanted hires Joe Matthews after he retires from his work with the Miami Police Department. Remember, Joe is the one who was brought in at the beginning of the investigation to conduct those polygraphs. He's kicked off when he won't get that confession from Jimmy. He was now hired onto the show to help with cold cases. So Joe and John work for six years together when finally in 2006, John asks Joe if they can meet up and discuss something. Keep in mind by 2006, it has been 25 years since Adam Walsh was brutally murdered. His parents had never found answers. John and Revae ask Joe if he would be willing to take another look at Adam's case and prove who murdered Adam. Revae said that she had to know what happened before she dies. Joe describes this to the Cold Blood documentary team as an emotional meeting, and he agrees to return to Hollywood, Florida and investigate the case. Now remember, his first time around back in 1981, the Hollywood Police Department was not so welcoming. But now there was a new police chief in office, and he welcomed Joe with open arms, handing over Adams' entire case file. As Joe searches through the pages of evidence, he ultimately comes back to the main suspect in this case, who had been investigated just two years after Adam was killed 23 years ago, Otis Toole. There are a few damning pieces of evidence Joe finds that links Otis to this case. First, in Otis Tool's confession, he said that after taking Adam and driving for a little while, Adam had become hysterical. He was crying for his mom. Otis said that he became so enraged at the crying that he punched Adam in the face until he knocked him out. This correlates with the findings in the autopsy. If you recall, Adam was found to have bruised eyes and a broken nose. Which, again, breaks my heart. He was mm. punched in the face until he, because he was crying for his mom. It's just so sad.
1: How did he even get him that quick?
0: It sounds like, and there is a witness, actually, which Joe also finds that really no one ever talked to that saw like Otis tool and it goes along with what Otis said but you know adam came out and then he basically told adam he had some toys in his car and adam he got out and adam walked up to the car with him wasn't fighting or crying and just got in i wonder if it was like a shy thing again where he was just like i'm just gonna listen to this guy john said that like they taught adam to like be respectful of like authority and stuff and he just went with him. But I think once they had been driving for a while. I know. Like the worst. And it's like once he had been driving for a while, I think that's probably when Adam realized like this he was scared. Mm -hmm. So he starts crying, like, hey, I'm ready to go back to my mom. So The next thing that Joe finds is that a tip had been called in after Otis Toole was arrested. It was a mom saying that this same man had tried to kidnap her daughter too. It was July 27, 1981, when this mom and her daughter go to Kmart, only a mile away from the Hollywood Plaza. Her daughter, who would have been around 12 years old, went to the toy department and runs into a creepy-looking man who is pushing a shopping cart, and this man asks the girl if she wants a ride. She starts screaming, and she runs away to find her mom. Well, two years later, when Otis Tool is in the newspaper as a suspect in Adam's case, this little girl is now 14 and she sees the paper, she sees his picture and she immediately starts crying. She tells her mom that this is the man who tried to take her too. The mom calls the tip in, but it was never followed up on by police. They had never interviewed the girl. And Joe Matthew says like, this is what could have placed Otis Tool in the area because that's a problem that the police had had all those years ago. They just said they couldn't confirm he was actually around town at that time. Mm -hmm. But this is something that kind of places him there. And this is also when Joe finds out that the security guard had kicked Adam out of the mall with those other boys. She tells him which door she sent the boys out. And it happens to be the same door that Otis Toole had drove Detective Hoisington to and pointed out as the door Adam came out of so there's just little things that Joe is finding that are linking up you know circumstantially but still Mm -hmm. and it's things that weren't really investigated 23 years earlier when police started looking into Otis Tool. So the other thing, like I said, an eyewitness was there. So an eyewitness had come forward back in 1981 and he said he saw the abduction. He saw Adam walking with an unkempt man and he assumed maybe it was Adam's uncle because the boy was not fighting. He wasn't crying and he watched the little boy get into a Cadillac. And this witness described the car in detail. And he said there was a big dent in the right rear bumper. Well, Otis's car had been recovered by police and it was photographed. But in like the case file, Joe did not have the photographs. So he contacts the state crime archives and they tell him they have 98 photos And the woman on the phone tells him she will forward them to him. She also tells Joe that it's strange because this case was over two decades old. And Joe is the only one who had ever requested to look at these photos. No one had ever looked at the photos taken of Mm. Otis's car when they were investigating Otis which is weird because they also had this eyewitness who literally described Otis's car. Back in 1983, when police were investigating Otis, they had found a machete in the back of his car. It had been sprayed in luminol and pictured. And so Joe sees in the pictures that this machete was covered in blood. There's also a picture of the floorboard of the backseat carpet. In Otis' own words, he had said that he had thrown Adam's head behind him onto the floorboard of the car. And there is a picture where the police have sprayed with luminol and then they take, you know, the picture. And it shows this large bloodstain on the back of the floorboard carpet. Joe Matthews says that when he saw this picture, he recognized Adam's face. That it literally is an outline of Adam's face. Like you can see the eyes, the nose, the mouth where they would have been laying and the blood like around it. And then John Walsh, he was interviewed in this Cold Blood documentary. And he said that to this day, he has not looked at the picture because he said it would be the last image he sees before he goes to sleep. It would be an image burned into his memory. But he said that Revae did have the guts to look at it. And that she said it is Adam's face in the carpet without a doubt. Oh. I think this for Revae and John was like a big thing that like confirmed to them that it was Otis' tool. Yeah. Because she said she also recognized her son's face. Hmm. I'll have to send you the picture. I'll have to look it up after this and you can see. But this was, again, evidence that was never looked at by the Hollywood police 23 years earlier, evidence that really they could have prosecuted him with back then. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that Joe was able to find was that this witness said there was a big dent in the right rear bumper. So he looked through all the pictures and it is confirmed there was a big dent in the right rear bumper of Otis Tools Cadillac which just confirmed this eyewitness testimony, which is a lot more solid than like the eyewitness that said they thought they saw Adam get thrown into a blue van because that was a young boy who said he saw that, you know, so a kid who said he might have seen that versus like an adult man who says he saw it, describes the car, and then it actually matches. Yeah. So to this, this confirms for Joe, for John, for Reve that Otis Toole was Adam's killer. But sadly, Otis would never face justice for Adam's murder because he died in prison in 1996, 10 years before Joe started looking into Adam's case. He had died from cirrhosis of the liver and AIDS. But, a couple of years later, they do decide to close Adam's case and say that Otis Tool was the killer. Joe says it's called exceptionally cleared, which was accepted by the Florida State Attorney's Office, meaning that if Otis had been alive, then police would have arrested him, he would have been prosecuted, and he would have been convicted. Therefore, this case is closed. So Otis Tool did murder Adam Walsh. Hollywood Police de- the Hollywood Police Department does come out in 2008 and this is when they name Otis as Adam's killer. So 27 years after Adam is murdered, finally the case is closed and the Hollywood Police Department does come out and they apologize to John and Revee Walsh. Chief Chad Wagner of the Hollywood Police Department had announced it and made this apology. Like he said, they didn't investigate it well enough back then and that if they would have looked into things a little deeper like Joe would have, they probably could have closed the case 25 years earlier.
1: They shouldn't have made him Joe leave the squad.
0: Yeah, literally. Shouldn't have kicked him out for not wanting to get a false confession out of somebody. So John Walsh says that this was a huge day in him and Ravey's life. He says that the anger and the hurt and the resentment and the sadness, it all kind of dissipated that day. And he said that his beautiful little boy didn't die in vain. And he always describes Adam as a beautiful little boy. It's so cute. Mm -hmm. I feel so sad for him. They both got up and they spoke at this press conference where they're naming Otis as the killer and Rave had gone up and said that the apology from Chief Wagner had like penetrated her soul and John Walsh said quote the not knowing has been a torture the journey's over a lot of horrible memories in this police department looking for that little boy now I think it's only fitting that it ends here in this police department and he said that his heart will be broken for the rest of his life because he misses Adam more than he did when he was missing. Because back then, the reality hadn't set in. So, you know, John and Rave like we know, went on to do a lot of advocacy work. They still work with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. One of their sons hosts co-hosts with him um, in pursuit with John Walsh their kids are involved with the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children so his one son who's named Callahan he said quote I grew up with my parents saying that if Adam's song is to continue then we must do the singing and I'm trying to do that every day as a child's advocate I want to help get the families the justice they deserve and I thought that was sweet. They they say that a lot. Like that's kind of their saying is that like to continue his song, then they need to do the singing. So like being out there and doing the work and putting it in. And that is Adam Walsh's case. Thanks for listening. I research, write, host, and edit this show. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas music. Make sure to find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter as well. And follow along for pictures of the cases. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters. Today, I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. Today, we're going to be learning about teeth. Did you know that most historians agree that ancient Egyptians created the first toothbrushes from frayed twigs between 3,500 to 3,000 B.C.? We know this because Egyptians Preserved items in tombs, including these chewing sticks. I guess they were sick of stinky breaths, so they stuck twigs in their mouth. That reminds me, I gotta go brush my teeth. Bye. Of course, the organization I'm going to highlight today is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which we learned in this episode. John Walsh co-founded and his family still works for, his kids are involved, and this center... NCMEC is what they do for sure. is the nation's largest and most influential child protection organization. They say that they lead the fight to protect children, creating vital resources for them and the people who keep them safe. Because every child deserves a safe childhood. You can visit their website at www.missingkids.org and I highly urge you to go there to donate, to volunteer, do what you can to support this organization.